This episode of Reading Trek is brought to you by our patrons. You too can support this vibrant fan-based podcast network by visiting patreon.com slash the tricorder transmissions. For as little as $1 a month, patrons gain exclusive early access to some of our unedited shows, interviews, and even get to join in on exclusive patron-only chats. We have lots more patron content on the way that you won't want to miss, so visit patreon.com slash the tricorder transmissions. Be sure to mention that Reading Trek sent you. Put down that remote, set your phaser to stun, and pick up that paperback. You do have books in the 24th century. Welcome to episode 12 of Reading Trek, a Star Trek book club podcast and proud member of the Tricorder Transmissions podcast. My name is Marty Ali, and I am co-host list for the discussion portion, but um, my co-host William will be here later in the episode with special guest James Swallow for an exclusive interview, so stick around for that. Um, but I do have two guests joining me today. The first, a Tricorder Transmissions veteran and our uh, discovery guru, Miss Heather Barker. Heather, how are you today? Hi, I am excited. We just wrapped our Saru episode over on Disco Trek, so I was super excited to read a Saru book and talk all about Saru. Uh, I'm excited as well. Um, we're also joined by um, Justin Oser from the Trek FM Network. Justin, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Great to be here talking about a new Discovery novel. For those who are new to the podcast, we are a book club podcast working our way through the Star Trek Expanded Universe one novel at a time, discussing the characters, plot writing, and piecing it into the larger Trek universe as we pull out the meanings and messages of the text. Although we do encourage you to read along with us, the show was designed to give all Trek fans a way to journey through the EU together, even if you haven't read the books. Today we are talking about Star Trek Discovery Fear Itself by James Swallow. And if you're a regular listener, you might be wondering what happened to part four of the Invasion series. Um, We did have a few scheduling conflicts last week when we were going to record that, but we wanted to get this one out as soon as possible. So part four of Invasion will be coming in the next episode. Do not worry. The question isn't where we are. It's when we are. The novel takes place in 2252, four years prior to Battle at the Binary Stars. I'm going to do a brief summary this week. Black alert. Black alert. Lieutenant Saru is a Kelpian, member of a prey species born on a world overrun by monstrous predators, and a being who is intimately understands the nature of fear. Challenged on all sides, he is determined to surpass his origins and succeed as a Starfleet officer aboard the USS Shenzo. But when Saru breaks protocol in order to prove himself to his crewmates, what begins as a vital rescue mission to save a vessel in distress soon escalates out of control. Forced into a command role he may not be ready for, Saru is caught between his duty and the conflicting agendas of two antagonistic alien races. To survive, he will need to seek a path of peace against all odds and risk compromising the very ideals he has sworn to uphold. All right, uh, Justin, why don't you kick things off and give us your overall thoughts on Fear Itself? 
Well, I won't leave you in suspense. I really love this novel. It, you know, there was so there's so much about Saru that we wonder about, and I think there are a lot of answers that I felt like I got here. Saru's actually a character I struggled with uh, a little bit because trying to understand how fear motivates him and in different ways and how things work for his species. But I felt like James Swallow in this novel really kind of got you into Saru's head and you're able to kind of see both the positive and the negative aspects of, of, of fear for him. It's not something that's always negative. It's not something that's always making him cower. And I think we saw that somewhat in Discovery, but I think you see it really strongly in, in this novel. And I felt like the, the plot as well was just really engaging kind of start to finish. Um, I, I just love the novel. I agree completely with you. Um, how about you, Heather? What did you think? Yeah, I have loved the, all of these books so far, and this is just another great addition. And I valued the fact that it was very focused on Saru because, like Justin said, we did get um, quite a lot of answers. And while I will say this, I keep thinking that we're going to get like this huge backstory, and that's not what you get out of this book. No. Um, you, you get some insights and some details about his past, but there's no like deep dive into the pre, you know, the, the life of Saru before Starfleet, anything like that. Um, however, like Justin said, you learn so much about how the fear affects Saru in negative and positive ways. Um, and, for me, that resonated very strongly because same thing as Justin. I, even though I love Saru and I've been fascinated with Saru, um, I had a hard time really making a connection and understanding a character who has lived a life, you know, being being a, a prey or how would you say that? Being just being prey uh, and and living in fear your entire life, uh, but. I've recently been through an experience where now I kind of know what that feels like. And so a lot of, a lot of the, the quotes in this book resonated with me. Uh, so while I didn't get, you know, all this great background information on Saru that I thought I may be getting, I still got a lot out of it because of the, the explanation of his psyche, I guess. Yeah. I kind of agree with the both of you. I thought the the story was really nice I, I was wondering if we were going to get kind of like flashbacky type insights into Saru's like origin story, but I thought like the little tidbits we got were were enough to kind of piece piece it together ourselves. Um, I did you actually? I think James Swallow had an interview with Trek Movie recently where he said that he did write an extensive backstory, thinking that's what the novel would be about, but they wanted to actually use that in the show. They didn't end yeah. up doing that in the first season, but maybe later. So I think it's something he wanted to do and a lot of us wanted to see, but they thought they might use it in the show instead. Yeah, and that's smart because not everyone is reading the books and or mm -hmm. those that are reading the books aren't reading the books. Like they aren't devouring the books like we are. Yeah. Uh, so that, that makes sense uh, for sure. And they helped to kind of write the series Bible in the early days as well. Kind of, and they 
provided things, characters that ended up being on the show, giving names, which which is great. We've never seen that much connection with the novel writers and a show in progress. Yeah, and another thing that I really love about this this collection, this trio so far, is the fact that you know we're we've got the Shenzo Shenzo, and so we're learning so much about these characters, many of whom we just got a glimpse of. Uh, so, you know, we, we know Saru in a way, we know Michael Burnham in a way, and we know a little bit about Giorgio, um, but getting to see all the, the bridge crew and have them tied together throughout these novels is really neat. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. I think it's, it's great. Speaking of the bridge crew, I can't forget to mention because Will would murder me, um, Yeoman Danby Connor. (laughs) Yeah. Which I thought was just a little cute way to include him in the novel. Yeah, that was great. I did notice that and made a note of it. They did say he was a yeoman in Desperate Hours, right? Am I remembering that right? I don't remember, and I didn't. I was mm. like, I need to go through <laughs> and either Google it or just like go through all three books and try to pinpoint where they're at. But I, I, I can't remember. Yeah, I, I, I thought I'd remember that, but... Nine months since I read that novel. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. We'll just, we'll just say that you're right. <laughs> but it was cool to see him alive again. Yeah. Yes, yes. Definitely. He, he lives on in the novels. <laughs> now we just need a full novel on Dan B. Connor, and I'll be a happy camper. That would be really cool. And I actually hope we get a whole a whole series of Shenzhou novels. Yeah. Yeah. Star Trek Shenzhou. Yeah. Uh, pocket books if you're listening working on that okay so there were some new things we learned about the universe or at least that i learned about the universe in this novel um i'm not sure if it's ever been mentioned in in a story before but they mentioned the and i'm going to mispronounce the hell out of this the um Kardashev scale for measuring civilians civilization's level of technological advancement Mm-hmm. Um, I had never heard of that before this novel. No. We learned that Saru communicates with other Kelpians via electromagnetic energy, which I thought was really cool. That was yeah. super cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there anything else that you guys pulled out that was kind of new to you or new to the Trek universe? I think I noticed a couple of things. If I'm not mistaken, I think they actually gave a name to Saru's homeworld in this. Mm-hmm. They called it Kaminar, mm-hmm. maybe I'm pronouncing that right. So that that was cool just to have a name, even if we don't know much about it. Yeah. I I noticed also, you know, one of the things you notice a lot about Saru is he has like this tongue clicking he does sometimes, and and you always wonder like what, why is he doing that? But it actually says in the novel that it's a way to fill an awkward pause instead of giving a direct answer. Mm-hmm. It's a small thing, but I thought that was a that was a cool little thing. And also, there's a point at which he stops his threat ganglia from emerging. Yeah. I didn't know that he was able to do that. I thought it just came out and he, there was nothing he could do about it, but he was actually like consciously trying to keep it back, which is, which is something different. Um, yeah, those are some things I noticed. Yeah, and I think, so the apex predators are, I would assume this word is the ba'ul, uh-huh. is what they're called. So that was yes. kind of cool to learn about that. Um, and then just sticking with Saru, and I, I don't know if we should talk about this now or like, Throughout the podcast is what we learn, but um, there's definitely backstory as to 
why he left. Um, and, you know, they gave a little hint at one point in the book. They say, you know, his species was hunted by the Ba'ul for so long, and then something changed. And then they didn't really talk about what changed. Um, but then... I think it's at the very end of the book, and I kind of hope mm-hmm. one of you might have highlighted this because I, I can't. I think I know it. what you're talking about, where where it, it talks about uh, his own kind turning their backs on him and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that was a great moment. Yes, like, yes. So you know, again, I really look forward to getting some of our you know our old school Star Trek character deep dive episodes. Because I think that that's where we're going to find out some of this backstory. Um, I'm super intrigued just just to know more. Because I'm, I'm really fascinated. Uh, you know, this is an alien that we've never seen before. And we don't know anything about. So, of course, I want to learn everything about it. Um, or everything about them. Yeah, I hope whatever backstory that James Swallow wrote, they're going to put into a season two episode. Because I want to know what he wrote. <laughs> yeah, and I bet they will. And that maybe we need to make sure that Will asks that question of him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it's likely that your story will be used? Because, uh, you know, it, it very, very well may be. Um, so, yeah, so we have, have new alien races in this book, right? The Peliarzel. They're actually not new. Are they're they not from, new? No. The, the TNG episode, the host, you know, the one with the Trill Ambassador, oh Odan, gosh, he's yes. negotiating between the Alpha and Beta Moon of Peliarzel. Oh, I feel dumb now. No, it's okay. <laughs> I had to think about it and look it up, and I was like, oh, that's who they are. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I, you know, side note, I didn't get to do a lot of research. I finished the book um, last night, so my my plan was to sit down and look up like some of the aliens that are in here as well as that so thank you for um, like actually every time i came across something i wasn't sure where it was from i looked it up on like memory alpha and memory beta to see where it came from that's the smart thing to do i was trying to read the book as quickly as possible to make sure i could do the podcast (laughs) well maybe that maybe that's why i finished like four hours ago instead of yesterday (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah I finished um, so this morning, so I don't, yeah, we're, we're all in the same this, boat. Well, you know, it's like the book came out on my birthday. I the had week, so, celebrations. You know. you know, we had to get it done pretty quickly. Um, so then what about the Gorlin? We don't know about yes, the Gorlin. Yes, there is. Well, we don't know much about them, but okay. it comes from a reference in the TOS episode mm-hmm. Mirror, Mirror, where, where uh, Prime Kirk is talking to the computer in the Mirror Universe, and he says, you know, tell me about his command record about the command record of the ship. And it says that, that the Gorlins were part of Mirror Kirk's first mission and he suppressed their rebellion and destroyed their planet. That's basically all that's in canon about the Gorlins. Jim, the way this ship is run, what kind of people are we in this universe? Let's find out. Computer. Ready. Read out official record of current command. Captain James T. Kirk succeeded to command ISS Enterprise through assassination of Captain Christopher Pike. First action, suppression of Gorlan uprising through destruction of rebel home planet. Second action, execution of 5,000 colonists on Vega 9. Cancel. Now we know.
Interesting. Yeah, so it's a very, like, and I noticed that over and over again in this novel. He was taking really deep cut references. That's one little piece of dialogue in one episode. You never see them. You never hear about them again um, on screen. But And turned it into an entire conflict in the novel, which is incredible. Like like a whole conflict, and you learn so much about their culture and their spirituality and all this. I was just impressed. And even for the Peliarzel, sure, there's a whole episode about them, but you pretty much just know that they're in conflict. You don't know all of this background and all these different personalities. So James Swallow really just turned that into so much. I mean, the Gorlins especially, because it's just like a name. There's nothing you really know about them. Can I just say that this is proof that like these people love Star Trek? Like, oh, yeah. they, Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's amazing. Um, but yeah, and you know, like you said, like that one line kind of said, oh, they had a rebellion. And I guess we don't know a whole lot about their rebellion, but um, I just love the story here and how, I mean, this totally could be a movie and I want to see this movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> number one, it's, it's such a Star Trek story. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, you don't quite know what's going on. I was fascinated by the Gorlin immediately and then kind of off put by the, so do you call it, is, are they just Peliarzel or are they Zellans or yeah, Alphas or Batons? Yeah, they, they, they refer to them as Alphas and Alphans and Batons, but I think overall it's just Peliars. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was, obviously I was kind of like, oh gosh, these people are awful. Uh, you know, what are what are they doing to these poor Gorlins? And then we find out that, um, oh, what's her name? Nar. I should have an impression. of me. Nathal? Nathal, yes. Yeah. You know, we find out that Nathal and everyone on her ship, and here it was right in front of me in my notes, duh. Um <laughs> You know, that they were misled as far as what was going on as well. Um, so, like, the only, like, minor negative thing I have to say about the book is that this felt very um, Star, Trek, Star Trek Into Darkness when it was revealed that it was her father on the other ship. So <laughs> it felt a lot like Carol Marcus being on the Enterprise and Admiral Marcus, you know, showing up and, and having that father-daughter relationship playing a part of it. Like, that felt a lot like Into Darkness to me. Where are we? We're 237,000 kilometers from Earth. Damage weapons are way down. We're defenseless, sir. Sir, we have a bulkhead breach. Where's the damage? Major hull damage, Captain. Uh, Evasive maneuvers! Get us to Earth right now! Stop! Everybody on this ship is going to die if you don't let me speak to him. Where the hell? Sir, it's me, it's Carol. What are you doing on that ship? I heard what you said. You made a mistake and now you're doing everything you can to fix it. I don't believe that the man who raised me is capable of destroying a ship full of innocent people. And if I'm wrong about that, then you're going to have to do it with me on board. Actually, Carol, I won't. Oh. Did we intercept a transport signal? No, sir. Okay, 
It's just I, had, it, I hadn't even thought of Into Darkness when I was reading that, actually. Well, good. <laughs> good. Because I thought of it, and I was kind of like, oh, I don't want to see that there. Like, that's already in another thing. So yeah. that's good. I'm glad that the same thing didn't didn't come up in your mind. But, but I did think, like, man, this Admiral is is just, like, one-dimensional bad. I mean, he, like, for a lot of the characters, I think they're, you got to see the full person. But for him, he was just, like, pretty like aggressive and militaristic he's a classic star trek bad bro yep yeah he kind of is except he's not in starfleet (laughs) yeah and at the end of the day he did do something redeeming i mean he He did did, he did sacrifice his life and and that ship Um, which reminded me i think there were a lot of parallels to some of the things in discovery itself because that very much reminded me of the admiral and battle at the binary stars who basically Mm -hmm. sacrificed his ship as well even though he seemed like this just like stern harsh guy but he did the same thing yeah i mean it was it was nice to see that um you know overall this is this book is just it's so star trek it has such such a strong star trek message not just with you know helping these people and um oh that was the other thing that i i felt a lot like um the peliars and the gorlins like there was a little bit of um darmok there with at the beginning before they fixed the communicator yeah yep yep with not understanding the language and that just being so divisive and just not even you you know what really trying what it also reminded me of it also reminded me of fantomi species from the voyager episode the void because they were like these these people that were just kind of a pest and you know below decks and stuff like that although it was different in that episode because they wanted to kill them but it made me think of that like because of the not being able to communicate they're very misunderstood Mm -hmm. and it was great how you know eventually you get to see how they communicate and that they also you know communicate with these electromagnetic impulses which is just fascinating the idea that that can add to it because you know, as as humans there's words that we have, there's tone, inflection um, there's body language but there's nothing I don't think like about our electromagnetic signature that at, that would translate something differently. So that was really interesting to think about. So one of the big things that resonated with me in this novel was actually Saru, the subject of the novel, um, and kind of getting in his head a little bit really connected with me because I kind of struggle with the same things that he struggles and I was actually thinking of you, Heather, when I was reading this, because mm-hmm. I know that you probably really resonated with Saru as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, There's a couple, like, specific moments that I resonated with. Um, one of them is in Chapter 4. Um, for the most part, Saru was a stickler for process and protocol, a firm believer in scientific rigor. But there was a part... There was a side of him that was pure Kelpian, a throwback to the reactive, primitive nature of the prey species his kind had once been. That conflict was pressing on him, the responsive elements versus the rational, both trying to make sense of the emotions that his venture into the Gorland gathering had brought up. I believe this situation has effectively affected me more deeply than I was aware of. And that kind of struggle between responsive versus rational and making sense of your emotions is something that I struggle with on a daily basis in everything I do. And it reminded me a lot of Michael Burnham, too. Yeah, those um, two characters are more alike than, than they are. They are, and I think that's why 
they're you know they they kind of oh what's the fright you know well they just you know they don't get along because they are so similar and they they really haven't had the opportunity to get to know one another to explore those similarities and realize them um I've had that happen in real life where it just turns out that, oh, you're actually just a lot like another person, even though you didn't, mm. I can't, I can't think of what the phrase of like rub elbows. That's not the right, <laughs> the right phrase. Um, but yeah, I, uh, you know, I talked in Disco Trek a little bit about um, Saru's character and the relationship with fear being a metaphor for anxiety um, because it seems like this is something that's come up on social media a lot where people who suffer from anxiety see themselves in Saru and, you know, not all anxiety is, I mean, yes, it is worry. It's not always like fear for your life based. Um, but you know, it's there, it's there in the background, just like Saru's fear is there in the background. And I've, I found it really fascinating how how much fear plays into just his his daily life his thoughts his self-esteem and how he's able to kind of battle it and overcome it and suppress it and I think we see a lot of that in this book um and I think one of the quotes that I picked out I don't know that we're quite talking about quotes um and it's page 95 I don't have the chapter um it is chapter 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 five actually um but i guess one of the old axioms they're told is death death is the shadow at the heels of every kelpian born and then it says in the next paragraph um some among his crewmates on the shenzhou thought him to be morbid even fatalistic in the way in which a shadow lurked behind his every waking moment his every thought and action they didn't understand that the reverse was true Saru's certainty that danger and death awaited him did not shade his life in morose tones and made him all the more determined to live it down to the very last second. Um, That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. It, it, it really is. There are quite a few quotes in here that I highlighted um, that I'm just going to keep keep with me um, because anxiety and especially fear-based anxiety and I don't want to get too much into my personal life. If you listen to our podcast, you have probably heard about them. Or if you've listened to my shows over on Trek FM with Amy and Brandy, you've heard about my life and what I've been through. But for the past seven months, I've spent a lot of that time actually in fear of my, my safety and my life. And so not just having that fear, but then I developed anxiety, <laughs> extreme anxiety because of it. And I haven't had anxiety at this level my entire life or even to a point where I felt it could be diagnosed. But the fact that he describes this as a shadow lurking behind his every waking moment, every thought and action, like that really is what anxiety is. Like it follows you. It's always there. And you you have to learn to live with it. And sometimes you you don't always win i mean there are bad days and good days but um it does at some at some point you just have to find this i don't know this resolution and strength within yourself to work through it um and so i i definitely this whole it just resonates with me very strongly and i'm having trouble expressing myself um but 
it 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 does fighting this daily fight um at least for me i i understand having the will um to live with it and to get over it or not to get over it but just to try to do what you can to overcome those feelings and and really live your life and for saru you know we'll find out his story and how he got there but it even says in here that, you know, he wants to be a captain. He mm-hmm. he doesn't believe in destiny, which I thought was really interesting um, because, you know, Mira Lorca was like obsessed with destiny. Everything was destiny to him. Um, but Saru doesn't believe in destiny. But he does he does feel um, drawn towards being a captain and, and having his ship and taking care of his crew. And, of course, we, we see that come to fruition um, in Discovery. So I that was very insightful, and it made me happy. Yeah, that's incredible. There was one more, like, Saru versus anxiety moment that I also had picked out. And I think this is the one, because this actually happened to me this weekend, um, if I can find it. Oh, um, it's actually Michael Burnham who's speaking. Burnham understood all too well what it was to be driven, to be con- consistently tested, and to be secretly afraid of faltering and failing those around her. If there's anything wrong with Saru, it's that. And that quote stood out to me because um, this weekend while I was playing kickball, um, I um, actually, I got pushed and fell and hurt my leg. My leg started swelling up and I had to sit out the rest of the game. This happened pretty early on in the game. And I sat there and watched my teammates play like in the shade under the tree from afar. And I just felt guilty that they, like that I wasn't in the game with them. I felt like I was failing my team by having fallen and having to remove myself from the game. Even though like they were doing fine without me. But, you know, it's still that kind of, that kind of same thing that she's mentioning about Saru here. It's something that, that I go through all the time and I didn't even realize it until I read it. So, Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I relate a lot to Saru, maybe in a different way, because for me, like, fear and anxiety for me can be very situational. Like most things in, in my life, it's, it's not a big deal, but especially when I'm encountering something that's new, that I'm not used to, some mm-hmm. some kind of change. Mm-hmm can make me very fearful and anxious or anticipating a bad thing that that will happen. But if I'm in my routine and there's things that that I'm doing all the time and I know how to do, I'm fine with that. I'm not, you know, gonna feel fear or anxiety. But but I I think that I can I can relate to it, especially when new things come or when when changes come. And man, Saru deals with a lot of changes here and he has to really uh in some ways channel his fear toward a positive outcome and in other ways suppress it away from a negative outcome. And it's just so interesting to see him go through all of the the challenges. And it's kind of inspirational because, you know, he has fear just every moment in this novel. And, and yet he manages to make his way through a very tricky situation and with some, you know, pretty brilliant thinking and 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 tactics especially in the second half of the of the book so i just found it really inspirational and just thinking okay you know if if he has fear all of the time 
and he can either use that positively or try to you know push away the negative aspects in order to do what he needs to do like the situations in my life aren't nearly as death defying as what he goes <laughs> through so <laughs> maybe it's not that bad you know yeah and it <clears throat> excuse me it's also a strong parallel with um the gorlins and the main guy um mado or mado however you want to say his name because he's kind of the opposite where that that character truly has let their fear um, overcome them. And so instead of, you know, I, not that Saru was always calm and controlled, but, um, you know, this guy is angry and aggressive and hostile. Um, and that's what fear does. It expresses itself in very different ways, um, you know, depending on your ability to deal with it. And I think that, you know, this is true of, of, well, like everybody, just like you guys have said, and it's the same for me that when I'm new at something, I'm usually not, you know, I'm not confident in what I'm doing. I don't know. Like I can sit here and do podcasts. And for the most part, I am extremely confident that I'm going to do an okay job. At least, you know, I've done so many podcasts now I've got that experience, but uh, the end of this month, I'm going to start, um, I'm learning how to fence. And so I have never fenced in my life i've never done anything with a sword um and this is long sword fencing not rapier fencing like what picard did and everything <laughs> but it's i you know i'm nervous and i i i my boyfriend is the he owns school and so you know i told him i said just please understand that i'm going to be very self-conscious and anxious and nervous because i don't know what i'm doing and we all do that. Um, it's something that that I think we all experience. But then, even like for people who struggle with anxiety all the time, there's this this strange self consciousness that you get, and it's like no one is gaslighting you. No one is making you think this way that you're not good enough. Um, it's just something that kind of the anxiety does itself um, makes you doubt yourself and. Um, wonder about outside influence which i thought it was really interesting that saru cares so much about what other people think about him um that was another ongoing thing in his head where he was like you know what did they think of me do they think that i'm weak um oh there was a great oh sorry go ahead justin oh i was gonna say like and and there are times when it it made me think when he has some of the more introspective times it makes me think of when I think it's in episode five of Discovery that he's like, you know, tell me you're the best captains in Starfleet and what kinds of uh, things made them that way and can you keep track of it? He's like really concerned that he, like in all of the things that that he does, that he's not going to fail or embarrass himself. Or I mean, it's just super important to him and it it really motivates him in in this novel where he feels like he's been a failure in the first part of it, and he's going to redouble his efforts to to do better. I'm actually looking at a quote right now that talks just right about what you're you're saying. It's in chapter six. Um, if Saru couldn't prove to them that he was a leader worth following, when the time came to follow an order, they might hesitate and make the situation worse. But how could Saru instill that respect in them if he doubted himself the most? The ghost of the choice he had made up on the bridge of the freighter clouded every thought in his head. With effort, he forced himself to push that aside. It's 
and you know, we even we see it in Discovery. We see it um, in that episode where he goes to the computer, and I wish I knew the episode title off my head. But the one where you know, I think it's probably Choose Your Pain. Yeah, yeah, where he's acting, you know, acting captain for that, and he goes into the computer, and he's going to compare himself to all the previous captains. Like, you see that there is still this self doubt. Um, that's ever president Saru. And I think that's, you know, that's part of what Saru has to learn um, before he can truly fall into the captain role. But again, this is, this is previous to the series. So we see a lot more growth from him in the series. Um, there was another quote I wanted to point out because it just blew my mind. Um, and that this is, I think, also chapter six is page 119. He says, I am afraid, Saru agreed with a sigh, most of the time, but I've learned to live with it. And I am still learning to understand when a threat is truly apparent and when it is not. And this yeah. is something like I am dealing with this because when you have anxiety and when you have anxiety to the point that it's it, you have physical responses to fear, Um I can be sitting in my car uh, looking at my phone and a number appears that's, you know, oh, oh, this might be this person and I will have a panic attack. And I don't, you know, I don't force myself into a panic attack. It just happens. Um, and there's, there's, there's no threat coming from a phone call. Um, and this is something that I've really grappled with. And I actually, I listened to another podcast called Ologies and they did, it was a two-part episode on fear. And so I totally recommend that everyone go listen to those two podcasts because it was really fascinating. Um, and it ties in with Saru. But they talked about, and I don't remember the terminology, but basically, you know, uh, fears that are truly threats and fears that are not, that you kind of work yourself up over and make up in your head that's not really there. And that's just, it's something that I have have really struggled with um, and I'm trying to overcome. So the fact that he said, you know, he's still learning and I'm still learning. It just, it resonated with me so strongly. And, you know, I don't know that that James Swallow did any research about anxiety. And I don't know if I've made up this whole anxiety metaphor in my head, but I like to say like to people who connect with characters this way, just like a lot of, a lot of people connected with Tilly because they thought that Tilly was um, neuroatypical. And even though that character was not written that way, like if, if people who are, who are neuroatypical identify with her, like people on the autism spectrum, stuff like that, if they identify with her, I'm not going to take that away from them just because the character's not, you know, not actually written that way. So it's the same thing here where if people who have anxiety or other fear issues identify with Saru and we find out that, oh, no, Saru was never a metaphor for anxiety. Like, I'm not going to take that away from people who find that within his character. Um, yeah, I mean, because, like, in a certain way, it, it doesn't really matter whether or not a character was supposed to be written some way. If there's something there that that people can identify with and, you know, take in inspiration from, then that's a good thing, right? Yep. Because yeah. they're trying to tap they're trying to tap into something in the human experience, and it might relate differently to different people. Uh, the, oh, the, actually, I had that quote highlighted too. Yeah. The one, the one that ended, I'm still 
learning to understand when a threat is truly apparent and when it is not, which I really like. But you know what it made me think of as well is that like on the show, and I've seen some people comment about this, like that there might be some inconsistency in when Saru's threat ganglia come out. Like, is it a threat right. or is it not? Right. Should it hear or should not? So I, I almost felt like what, what uh, James Ball was also trying to say was he's still trying to learn <laughs> when that matters and when it doesn't, when the threat ganglia should come out and when they shouldn't. <laughs> it's not yeah. perfect. You know? yeah. he's, kind of ret- he's kind of retconning the show a little bit. Maybe, or maybe there was some of that in- intention that, you know, he's not, it's not a perfect response. It's just meant to be, you know, a guide. And, you know, you'll even see it uh, sometimes for people or animals or whatever, they might think, oh, a threat's coming, and it's really not a threat, and they're misinterpreting it in some way, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I, I kind of like that, and I think it makes sense. But but also, yeah, I think in our own lives, we're still trying to understand, like, what is a threat? What isn't? What should I be afraid of? When's it a good response? You know, we're just like in this learning process, just like he is. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's amazing how much these characters, I think are just, they're just real people, you know, they're human beings and they're just, they're written in a way like for me. And one of the reasons that I love discovery so much is that I can identify, I can see myself in almost all of these characters in some way. Um, maybe not Mira Lorca, hmm. but, <laughs> uh, you know, I see myself in Burnham. And so it's hard for me to like pick a favorite character, because I can look at each one and be like, oh, yeah, I see myself there and I see myself here. Um, total tangent. But speaking of, of Michael Burnham and her relationship with Saru and, and how much it played a part in this book, which I, I appreciate. Like, I love that this book is very much Saru focused, but that we still get insight into Burnham. Um, just like that quote that that you pointed out, Marty. And then she also talks about when she's going into talk to Captain Giorgio and how it reminds her of going in to talk to Sarek um, and kind of putting on a stoicism and not wanting to, to disappoint them, I guess is kind of what she was going for. I'm not sure. But um, I thought it was really interesting <laughs> that Saru basically decided to be like Burnham in this book. I mean, what did you guys think about that? That he, you know, he basically was like, what would Burnham do? Um, and and did what he thought. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we can all agree he did the right thing. Even Giorgio agreed that he did the right thing. Um, maybe not in the right ways. But uh, what did you guys think about the fact that he was trying to emulate Michael Burnham? Well, like I did think about that a, a little bit because... It may not be what you expect, but I mean, I think this and and there is, you know, even in this book that takes place four years after the first episode, there is kind of that, you know, rivalry or annoyance or whatever between Mm -hmm. them. But I think there's a couple of things that he sees. He sees Michael Burnham as someone with this Vulcan upbringing who, for the most part, kind of calmly does her duty and at least on the surface doesn't seem to be fearful in the way he does and he might wish to emulate that but also i think he has this feeling that because giorgio has taken on burnham a couple years before when sarek drops her off there's like this special relationship or that there's something that that she has a preference because i think he even asked toward the end of the book he's like do you do you like 
you do play favorites, right? Just like, no, I don't. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but Saru has that feeling like that there's something about Burnham that he desires to be, I think, a certain like calmness and, and confidence. Yeah. I mean, of course, the irony when you think about it is like he wishes to emulate Burnham. And what does Burnham do like in the first couple of episodes, but basically yeah. disobey orders and, and initiate her own one person mutiny. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, th- I thought it was it was appropriate and made me really just just think about it like I, but it's I think it's kind of like he wants to emulate certain aspects but he's still annoyed that he feels like she's getting more attention or is on a uh, a different trajectory than he is and you see more of that of course in Desperate Hours which takes place a couple of years later when Burnham selects as the first officer over him he's very mm-hmm. resentful of that yeah, and then he really has a new confidence when he is first officer yeah. uh, on Discovery, <laughs> um, and you know he's 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 snappy. <laughs> I just remember him saying, you know, that he's not going to let anything happen to his captain, and that's not the quote that it was, but he was just very forward and a bit sassy when he, he was. <laughs> yeah, to say that. So, um, yeah. I love this underlying story thread in the show and in um, Desperate Hours and in Fear Itself of of Saru striving to be a better officer and Michael Burnham just kind of always like shaving past him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> but I don't know. We'll, uh, it's I. I and it like makes me their... really want. It makes me really want Saru to end up staying the captain of Discovery in season two. Yeah, because I think, I think you could do a lot of character development with him as the captain. I think that a lot of people, you know, want to see Saru as captain in season two, and were really shocked when you know at the end of the last season they were going to go pick up another captain. Um, but I think that. I think that Saru still has some growing to do. Um, but and he had, I, I actually wasn't surprised because he hasn't really been a commander that long. Right? Yeah. Does he really no. have enough experience as a full commander to be considered for captain? I mean, I understand like all the stuff that he did was was amazing, but like if if he needs to have a certain amount of experience before you're captain, then maybe it should be someone else. Yeah, and it's how many promotions can you get <laughs> in such a short amount of time, which I may have already said or not. I don't know. Um, so I totally understand that. And I, I do like though, that we get glimpses of, of that, that Saru, you know, rising to that occasion in this book. Um, because he does, he is, he is like an acting captain for quite some time, um, and, and helps pull them through all of this and, um, not to skip to the end, but, uh, my absolute favorite, piece of this book was at the very end when he's talking to the Gorlins and the Piliar and um, he says some stuff before this but he says don't allow yourselves to be driven by fear fear of them fear of us fear of each other I have lived a life of dread and I have learned that it cannot be dispelled if you are alone unity brings light and light pushes back the dark and holy cow is that Star Trek like and I feel like he's speaking to our moment right now in history yeah. as well, right? Yes, yes, yes. absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I got, I got chills, and I just got such a happy feeling at the same time when I read that. I think I smiled. Um, 
because that is just such such a powerful statement. So bravo, James Swallow, for writing that little gem. Um, like I, I hope that those words wind up in the actual show at some point because they're just so amazing to me. Um, you should be on a T-shirt. Yeah, you know, talking about not being alone um, because it is so true. And again, for me personally, like I would not have. I mean, I'm not going to say I wouldn't have survived the last seven months of my life, um, but the and really it's been the star trek community that helps me through this um like literally the star trek community donated money that that potentially saved my life and got me out of that house and into an apartment um that that unity did bring me light and and has helped get me out of the darkness that i have personally been through and so it's just a a huge reason why that resonated with me so so strongly um. Yeah, I'm gonna put it on a T-shirt or a tattoo or something. Oh, that's cute. You could write it in. Um, if we ever get to see what the Kelpian language looks like, you could write it in Kelpian. Yeah, I hope that we do, and that's a good point. Because there was a hint about that in the book, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah, like he yeah. had it written all over his walls or something. <laughs> yeah, but we didn't yeah. really learn much about it. Which, again, I was like, well, I want to know more. When Burnham was in his quarters and she found it, kind of with like a, a UV light or something, it seemed. Um, but he, uh, Saru vision is what I... Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I saw it as like uh, Kelpian secret ink or something. Right. <laughs> but, and it's like all over his room. And I'm just thinking, oh, yeah. my God, I want to know more about this. Like, because that's just... Number one, that's an interesting behavior. Like that happens when people are in confined spaces, like prison. Um, that you were. Yeah, writing. I was going to say, like yeah. a serial killer in prison or something would be like writing all over their cell or something. Yeah, exactly. So I was just kind of like, well, this is interesting behavior, because uh, for someone who's so by the book and follow the rules to technically be defacing, <laughs> you know, Starfleet property, I just I thought that was curious to say the least. So I and, yeah. And- did he just get like special permission to have like his own hollow emitters in his quarters so that, they, so that he could get tested on different? I feel different like scenarios? all the quarters in this version of the 23rd century have hollow emitters because we saw the in Discovery like the mirror that was a hollow emitter and oh, Shenzo has all those hollow emitters on the bridge. And that's so old fashioned to have all those hollow emitters and holograms. <laughs> <laughs> so 23rd century Uh. i love i love the fact that that technology is in the books it should be so i think it's really cool it keeps Um, it consistent and i like that it does and we did learn that saru has the special um padding and or you know reinforcement in the walls of his um room to help with the electro sensitivity that's not the right word Mm. but that basically describes what it is but yeah um because you know just like we saw in pavo where he was overwhelmed by you know the vibration and the noise like that that is a thing that happens to him all of the time and so even on the ship he deals with that of course Uh, what's it like when he's on the bridge and they're being like rocked by explosions (laughs) it's crazy it's it's you know and again it's just this having to master 
um, a physical sensitivity or, or a biological reaction that you, you know, you can't control. It's, it's, um, oh, what's the word? Like involuntary, autonomous. That's not the right thing. We'll just say involuntary. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it, he's fascinating. It's fascinating. And that's, that's why this book is so valuable because, you know, we learn about Kelpian biology and psychology, um, and obviously Saru is is different from the rest of his kind. So I'm I'm rooting for more. <laughs> I just want more, more. <laughs> no, I agree. And I think anyone who's not reading these discovery novels is really missing out on on something that could potentially be um connected heavily to season two of Discovery if they go ahead with with what they said in that Trek movie interview. So we're going to have to pester James yeah. about that in, in our interview. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, but I do have written in my notes, Tholians, not enough? Question mark. I got a good amount of Tholians. It was good. See, like what I was afraid of though, was there were all these references and I was like, is he just going to mess with us and not actually show us Tholians? But I was worried about that too. <laughs> they were there. There was like this huge battle. I I thought it was it was great actually, mm-hmm. for you know species you don't see enough of really. We only saw I them thought... what twice. Uh yeah, yep. Yeah. Once in I... original series, once in Enterprise. Yeah, I you know I felt that we got just enough, um, mm-hmm. because you know the book really isn't about the Tholians. Uh, um, I'm I'm glad they were there because you know obviously they they play a part in Star Trek. Um, they're historical well, and go ahead. Yeah. And, and well, and tangentially relates to discovery and yep. the mirror universe. So yep. yeah, that's true. Um, so it's, it's important that we establish them, um, you know, in the books and, and in the show. Uh, but I, you know, even when, when they were battling the Tholians, the focus was really still on getting everyone in the ships to work together Mm-hmm. Um, and that, like, I, I, I read this book pretty quickly. Um, it was shorter than the last two. Was, yeah, it was. So, it, yeah. It, it, and it's, and it's shorter than I think most of the recent, uh, Star Trek novels. Yeah. And I, I did notice that, um, it didn't, no, I didn't feel like the story needed more or anything like that. Um, no. oh no, but, it was a real tight story and I appreciated that. There wasn't a whole lot of tangent you know unnecessary stuff yeah yeah i think you know in the the very beginning for some reason like i had a time like i had a difficult time getting like completely drawn into it um i would read a few chapters and put it down and part of that was also just time constraints but uh once I got maybe a third into the book, it was pretty much at that point, like, I'm not going to put this book down. And so the entire battle scene at the end with the Tholians was, was not only amazing to, to read just from an action standpoint, but um, with the Gorlins and with um, Asia or Asia, not quite sure. Not sure how you um, pronounce it, but I love yeah. that character. She I think is, it, uh, it was Asia. I yeah, listened to the audiobook. They said Asia. Ija, okay, she, I love her. Um, she, something about her reminded me of Jayla from Beyond. I think hmm. it was that she was playful. Because um, she's definitely <laughs> a different character. 
a very different character um, personality wise, except that she had that playfulness um, the second time when they got to sit down together and she was, they had the drink and then she was joking about that they were now betrothed and going to have children. Um, and then she I was, was like, what? Why, why are they doing children? this? So, yeah, yeah, at first yeah. I was like, whoa, this is really a thing? What? <laughs> I know. <laughs> she was that joking. Was, I was you like, I... <laughs> it, it's interesting you say Jayla, because I could see that with some of the playfulness, but I was thinking Kyle Paca because there was just like this, like, you know, wisdom to her and just calming influence. And, mm. and I love characters like that. And, and she was a great character. I love that she was a character. Um, that had a deformity, um, but that was, you know, lifted, as she said. Um, yeah, I that like, was an interesting idea. Yeah, I like the fact that, that they did that. Um, and uh, they didn't quite, they, they kind of alluded to the fact, Saru did, that because of that physical um, de- deformality, that, and, because, because of that, like she had the heightened senses and the the telepathy type thing, um, and precognition, predicting the future yeah, sometimes. Yeah. So, wow. so I thought you know it was interesting, and uh, you know this is the Gorlin are a spiritual race, and so she is you know they have a, a deity, um, the creator, and so she's you know she's been lifted. So they think that there is. Um, you know, uh, intervention here by their creator and whatnot, where I'm like, well, what's the actual science that's going on and why is she special? Um, she's just fascinating. And I like that. That's a character who I would read a whole other book, like just about that character. Mm. Um, very, very cool. Okay. Marty, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to ask if you guys caught the reference to, um, C. Varus, I'm going to mispronounce the episode title. Civis Pacum Parabellum. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yes, yeah, they were, it was kind of like foreshadowing something we've already seen. Yeah, it was kind of weird the way they did that, but I, I appreciated it. Yeah, I don't have the, the exact line for it, but it was it was something like that she was saying that somewhere in the future he would be... Oh, I have the exact line picked out. Yeah. Uh, don't try and seek out a place without fear. It's a part of you, and you mustn't deny it. One day you will find that, and it won't be real. Accept what you are, Saru. That's where your peace is. See, I was actually a little confused when I read that, because, like, actually in the Discovery episode, Saru is saying that the Saru that you see on the planet, like, that was him. That was just some different aspect, so in some way it was real, <laughs> to him at least. Yeah, it's... I think... And I'm sure it was real to him. I, you know, that whole episode for my, I don't know, the way that I processed it was the fact that for that small amount of time, he had complete control. He didn't Mm. feel fear. And that, that feeling of control is so extremely empowering um, that sure, like that would be him without the fear, but that's Mm. not like, he's never, that's not really him. Yeah. Okay. Um, he's never not going to be without that fear. Um, okay. but that, that works. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, man, she's such a, such a cool character. I just loved, I loved so much about this book. It's so good. <laughs> it, uh, it really is. I mean, 
it, I mean, it's, I think it's my favorite of the three discovery novels, but it's actually probably one of my favorite out of all the ones that I've read. It's just, yeah. there's just so much going on and there's so much we could talk about really because he, he builds like this rich world again, using these species that, you know, were seen in one episode or just mentioned and he just builds out like the whole world for them and how they are and this whole conflict. It's, it's just great. I think I pick out more quotes in this novel than I have in any other novel we've covered on the show mm. so far. There's just yeah, so I went stuff. through because I when I when I read the book the first time, I actually didn't do any highlighting or stopping. I just read it. I mean, I only I've only read it once, but I did go through today and kind of skimmed over and highlighted all these ep- uh, all these episodes, all these quotes. <laughs> Um, that it just stuck out to me. Like um, when Burnham says that she believes he's trying to do what he has always tried to do, the right thing. He strives to be a better Starfleet officer and uphold the same modes and ideals we all do, but that may get him killed. Um, I don't know. There is just so much. There, There is. Actually, like I, I wanted to, to just highlight one that, that I liked a lot. So it was on in chapter ten on page two oh four when Saru is talking to some of his fellow Starfleet officers in the middle of all of this. He says, Compassion is not weakness, enduring is not living, and belligerence is not strength. Yeah. There's just yeah, so much wisdom there. Really good. Yes. <laughs> that struck me yes. uh, as, as much as anything in, in the book because like they, they had this whole you know, you know argument about you know, what, what is strength? What is weakness? You know, what does it mean to be compassionate and all that? And just like said so much and spoke to me so much that part. It is, you know, to me, like compassion is such an important element of, of Star Trek and, and Mm -hmm. Starfleet, um, and, and showing compassion to others before judging them and jumping to conclusions. Um, so the fact that, that that got brought up here, um, you know, again, I just, I, I keep saying this and it's, it's because I'm very defensive about discovery for all the people that try to say discovery is not Star Trek, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, are you like eyes closed, ears covered because there's so much Star Trek and Star Trek discovery. Uh, and there, this there, is, there is, you know, I, I think part of the, the, the problem <clears throat> though, with, with more people seeing that is that. They're looking at the surface of it. They're okay. looking at the surface like, that's not what I anticipated it would look like. It's not consistent with the look of this or that. Yeah. And also, it's not condensed into, you know, you have these kind of stories that are within one episode and tell that, that story. You have to go beneath the surface and dig deeper and really kind of get into the whole flow of it and what the whole thing is trying to tell you to really get at that. Because like, I, I mean, I, I think that for a lot of the rest of Star Trek, you can look at an episode and be like, okay, I know it's saying this and this is why that's important to me. But for this, you have to dig deeper. And I think of those episodes, Heather, that you did with uh, Amy and, and Brandy, where you're talking about all of these themes and, you know, I'd watched the episodes a lot and thought about them a lot. And I was like, oh, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about that. I didn't think about that. I mean, there's, because, because if you're just kind of looking at it in a certain way, you might miss that. Or even if you're trying to look at it deeply, you might just miss some of the connections because it's strung across like all these different episodes. Yeah. So. Well, and I think that 
when you go into something and you're already critical, like that's just going to affect the entire reception. Um, and you know, if anything, Star Trek teaches us to be open-minded and to learn to view things objectively. And I think that, I mean, that's just life advice that I give to people, um, because that I, I have had to learn how to look at things objectively and how to, um, kind of filter communication that comes my way with an objective lens because someone might say something to you that that comes off very very offensive um but it it may not be and I don't have a good example of it I'm a very sensitive person Uh, so it's something that I've had to learn over time and I think that it's just it's important and you know you've got to give things a chance and again you know I'm never going to be one to say you have to like this and uh, you know battle someone over it yeah. I just think- like, like everybody doesn't have to like it but what i would hope is that they would respect that there's something you see there that you like and that connects for you and you're still a fan <laughs> you know like that's mm-hmm. what i would hope for yeah. because like sure it's it's not it's not going to be for everybody not everybody's going to to like it but but you know I would hope that people would be okay that that I love it, you know? I mean, like, what's happened for me with Discovery is that, you know, I was very open to it, very excited about it. I actually had some struggles with some of some of the early episodes, not the first two, but probably three and four. And then, like, as I looked through it again and went through it again, and I was just liking it more and more, and I'm doing another rewatch, I'm just loving it so much and what it's doing that it's kind of up, up there uh, in contention with my favorite Star Trek series because... Wow. There's just, it really is because like, I I think that there's, there's so much that I love about a lot of other series, probably especially the next generation in deep space nine. But when I take a look at those and I rewatch those, there are certain episodes where it's like, why did they do that? Or Hmm. this is terrible because this or that there's some inconsistency, right? It's consistent in other places. But when I look at discovery and then you look at even what might be like the, the weakest episodes, it's still so much better than the weakest episodes of other series that for me, like watching it through, it's getting toward being my favorite. And I'll have to see like the whole run and see how it goes. But I think it is so much more consistently like high quality, even if in some aspects, some of the other shows have hit, higher highs than discovery has so far yeah i think that it's just like so incredibly like consistent i can watch it and not be like oh this one skip it (laughs) (laughs) yeah they're all like you yeah you really can't skip an episode but it's you can't because you wouldn't get the story but i don't want to because i think it's really good (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's the thing even like this i mean the standalone ish episodes um like you know magic to make the sanest man go mad um, it's a favorite. It's a fan favorite. Like by far that episode gets mentioned by so many people. And again, it's not a completely like standalone episode that you could watch, like skip over and really watch out of context. But, um, I think it's not only that that one is more standalone. I think it's because there's a lot of fun that they're having with it. Yes. And I think that's what yes. a lot of people are looking for and maybe haven't seen as much in Discovery. It's not That's not my favorite episode, no, even though I enjoy it a lot. But oh. but I can I can see why why people are just really into it. Like, yeah, that's some great stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but but I do find it, it so much. It was a fun ride. Yeah, it was, it was definitely fun. But, but yeah, I think that it's it's just so much more consistent and you know in in these these novels as well i mean i think that they're 
they're really good, and I think they're even getting better. And I do hope <laughs> that we'll have more coming along. Yeah, they have haven't made any announcements, right but yeah, I I think that we will. I think they're either saving that for Comic Con or STLV because no, that's kind of what I, they did. See, my wonder is if if it has to do with this whole CBS Viacom merger oh, mess yeah. that's going on. Yeah. Because because it seems like when they started thinking about that and getting more serious a couple of years ago is when they started winding down with some of the announcements and things expired and it wasn't renewed last year and all of that. So I wonder if they need to work that stuff out before they can move forward. I hope not because that might be a while. Oh, man. Yeah. No, I want more Star Trek. Because, I mean, we've got, you know, the Nick Myers stuff that's supposed to be happening. and that's on. He said that's on hold, I think, because yeah. of all the yeah. stuff. Yeah, <laughs> Um, so it's like there is more Star Trek out there, and you know, and the comics that, are winding down as well. So uh, it does seem a bit, a bit like that, doesn't it? They're not putting quite as many on the schedule for later in the year, even yeah. though we have some coming up in the summer. So, well, it's it's a good example of how the industry affects these shows. Um, yeah. It's something that I've talked about a lot across various podcast that I've been on and you know it's not just that the writers write an episode and everything that they write gets in it and everything the actors want to do they get to do and then oh there there it is like no there are there are higher ups that say you can do this you can do that and I mean this is the entirety of Star Star Trek not not just yeah well, I mean, it's been it, it's been affected by business decisions since the beginning because as much as we you know love the content of it, it's effectively to make money and always has been yep. right. Yep. yep. So you know, yep. it's unfortunate. But if but you know, fortunately for the novels, there's hundreds of other novels out there. So I'm just working my way back through some yeah. of them. We got some stuff to hold us over. Um, it's going to take me like many years. To, to finish out all the novels because there's there's so many so yeah, yeah. they'll they'll have more new ones you know before ten years from now yeah right? this <laughs> this podcast is part of my like uh, long term project to read all the the Star Trek novels so it's keeping me on track with reading them but okay I mean man it's gonna be it's gonna be like years and years before I can get to there's, all of them there's there's like including the short story collections there's I think close to eight hundred by this yeah. point um, so it's a lot up. I'm getting toward 200, but that's taken like four years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's hard. It's hard to make time to do all of these things. Like we yeah. have real, we have real life, you know, like real life. We have day jobs and then we have podcasts. You do? What? Um, yeah. So, which, you know, is, I, I think we're all kind of on the same page where podcasting is like our second job. Yeah. Uh, it keeps yep. us busy because it's, you know, obviously we had to read a whole book to do a podcast about it tonight. And we have to watch episodes when we talk about the shows mm -hmm. and, and all of that. It's a um, lot of work. Yeah. So it's, I, I find I have a heart. I'm like, man, these people that are doing their DS9 rewatch, like, oh, I, I'm envious because I have trouble. Like I'm still on season one on like episode nine or something. Uh, <laughs> not going to happen. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Did you guys find any messages, meanings, all that good Ken Ray, Ken Ray goodness? <laughs> I'll let Justin go first. Well, I mean, I think that we, we talked about a, a, a lot of that. I mean, of course it's in the title. Fear is important in this book. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and and overcoming your fear is important. But like one of the things I think we said it before, but one of the things I really love about it is that it's showing that fear can have positive and negative aspects. I think a lot of times people think of fear as something that is negative to be avoided and that you're a better person if you don't have any of that. But I mean, let's face it, even if we're not a prey species like Saru that's afraid all of the time, there are things that make us afraid in our lives and we have to figure out how to how to deal with those. And I think there's a really great message in here that sometimes you can take that and you can channel it into like being the best person you can be in in that situation. Because for Saru, his his fear, I mean, I think part of it is his fear of of failure. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's afraid that he's he's failing people and he needs to do better. Uh, I don't think like interestingly, I don't think he's as afraid of losing his life. He's more afraid of letting other people down and not mm-hmm. doing the yeah. best he could. Yeah. Yep. And I think there's a really great message in there that you can that fear can be a natural reaction to things that we don't know something that's happening or we think there's going to be a bad consequence. But how do you use that? And I think we can take inspiration from Saru and how he uses that fear to to for a really uh, overall kind of positive outcome and getting out of the, this sticky situation. Yeah. Um, the podcast that I mentioned earlier, Ologies, um, and the, the fear episodes, they talked about how successful people talk about fear. Um, and, and they t- talk about fear by actually using the word fear and addressing fear and not just saying stress or anxiety. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, uh, it's, again, just go listen to that podcast because it's really interesting. Um, but I think that you know, it, it kind of follows the line of Saru really addressing his fear um, and and overcoming it, and that sets him up for success at the end of the day. Um, I, I what I really loved about this book is that it it wasn't just about Saru and Saru's fear; it was also about you know the the fear that existed um, between the Peliar and the Gorlin. Um, there was a fear of the unknown and it it turned into something really angry um and there was even a fear that his fellow starfleet officers had about him being able to do the job yeah yeah um so it's like there were numerous elements of fear in the book it wasn't just saru and his fear um and and all of those elements played together and i think that's where our our you know messages morals and meanings mission log tm comes from <laughs> uh where you know it's it's really just again a story of of overcoming those fears of setting them aside um you know learning to communicate and thank goodness that universal translator that the gorlins got their hands on it so that they could get it to work and everyone could communicate clearly uh you know, there was still a lot of contention, but at the end of the day, we had everyone working on the ship together, um, you know, to fight against the Tholians. And so, uh, yeah. you know, I, I go ahead. Oh, and I was going to say, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting is that episode where you see the, the Peliarzel in The Next Generation, they are part of the Federation then. So maybe this made an impact on them to to want to join because they're considering yep. it at this point. Yep. I very much so. I mean, I know it was pulling teeth to get there, um, <laughs> but it, yeah, um, maybe it would be cool to get that story. <laughs> There's another book for you guys. 
Um, so many possibilities out there. There may already be one and I just don't know about it. Um, I don't think so because I, you know, I, I looked it up to see if there was anything more about the Peliars. I don't think that there is really like anything else, even in the novels, at least according to memory beta, which is usually pretty good. But I think that that, that's it is just that episode of the next generation and this novel, which is kind of cool. And well, hopefully we'll get one someday, but yeah, you know, there's there's a story about dealing with our internal fear. There's stories about, you know, how how our internal fears wind up expressing themselves externally. And that, you know, again, at the end of the day, it really comes down to um, unity and, yeah. and being able to work together. And unfortunately, it was... The threat of death that brought brought that into the, all the PLR and the Gorlins and everyone together, um, but you know, at the end of the day, it worked. And uh, I thought it was very interesting that the one person who really wasn't afraid at all was Asia, or right? now I can't say it again, Asia. Um, you know, uh, she she was the the one character in this book that never really expressed fear. Um, yeah. Which, you know, was interesting. And I, I found her presence calming. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime she was there, it was written so well that I was just like, oh, she's so wonderful. It was even calming in the audiobook version. The the voice yeah. that the, oh, really? the narrator gave to her was just this very, like, soothing, calm yeah. presence. Yeah. So. That, that's why I thought I thought so much of of Kaiopaka because whatever you see her on DS nine, even though it's not all that much, it's just like this calming, soothing presence. Like everything's yeah. going to yeah. be all right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I definitely see it. I definitely see it. Yeah, I kind of pulled yeah. out the same stuff you guys did. Um, unity brings light. Light pushes back the dark. If all you do is run, you are nothing more than prey. Uh, Justin, any final thoughts before we end it? I think I've said everything again. I I just love this. I mean, I I can't. I mean, I think we all pretty much love the novel. I just can't recommend it highly enough. It's yeah. just, it was just a real highlight of the year reading this novel. Actually, <laughs> I mean. that is high praise. I love it. Yeah. And Heather, any it. final thoughts from you? Yeah, I you know I would just I would reiterate, um, which at this point I don't need to, but it's it's obviously not you know, the story of Saru's life for Starfleet. It's not this, you know, intense character deep dive to the point where we learn all this stuff about his past, but um, it really was, was so much more. And I just, you know, again, it's such a personal thing for me um, that I have been able to go from not really being able to connect with Saru to experiencing uh, life trauma and being forced into a situation um, where I, you know, have lived that way, have lived with, with that kind of fear um, for so long now. And thankfully, this is coming to a close for me. And I, I mean, frankly, I have PTSD from from what I've been through, and so it's going to be with me for a while. But um, you know, everything is just reinforced, uh, you know, my, my connection with Saru and helped me understand him better. And, 
even like doing our deep dive into his character was really great. But this book, um, it just emphasized it so much more. So, uh, yes, go buy it, read it. Um, you know, I think I think it's strange, but like in a way, it might have been a better novel not being about his backstory because if it's about his backstory, yeah. you know where that's going. He's going to join Starfleet and all of that. Whereas in this novel, I really felt like, I mean, of course, Saru's going to survive, right? But other than that, it's like I didn't know quite where it was going to go, who the players were going to be, what the strategy mm-hmm. was going to be. So it was exciting in that way, maybe in a way that a backstory wouldn't because you know the ultimate end of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I just, I don't, I don't think we would have gotten this, the same depth, um, you know, being in his head while he dealt with all of this, uh, man, James Swallow is crafty. That, that's it. <laughs> he's, he's, he's a great author. I've only read a couple of his other novels. There was one of the Tarak Nor novels and then a Titan novel. He's a really, I mean, there's lots of great Star Trek authors, but I've been really impressed by the ones I've read by him, all of them. If his other novels are anything like this, I mean, this is just a, it was beautifully written, so. Yeah, the the Tarak Nor novel is like that. That's an outstanding novel that talks about the Cardassian occupation of Bajor, and it's, he wrote the first one in the trilogy, and it's just outstanding, so he writes some great novels. <laughs> well, it's, I'm going to have to go read them, because, I mean, honestly, I read a lot of, um, like a lot of biographies and then like kind of the behind the scenes type stuff. Um, different people who have worked on Trek. I read a lot of those things. I have read the, the autobiography books, autobiography of James T. Kirk. And um, what do we have? Spock was Picard. the last one. Spock, hasn't come out yet. Spock is the next one. That's right. Um, and so I really like those, but I haven't delved into a lot of the, the, you know, world building novels. I have um, Spock's world that Claire gets. Yeah, you have, you haven't read it yet. No, I, I, I just say that because book. it's my all time favorite Star Trek novel. That one is incredible. I'm going to read it next. I've had this book for like <laughs> three years. Claire gave it to me. I think at STLV and I, I like, I pick it up and I read like the first, I don't know, four or five chapters. And then like life happens and yeah. I never go. And I'm like, I just need to sit down and focus yeah, and read but, this book. I, it, it 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 is so good. There's actually like one specific part in there that I think has like the most profound wisdom I've found in any yeah. any novel, Star Trek wow. or otherwise. It's inc- really there's some incredible, incredible stuff in that novel. It's just my absolute favorite and probably always will be. Well, but. I'm gonna read I'm gonna read it before STLV. Like <laughs> Okay. Okay. I had real on like I had just started it again, like right before this book came out. Um so I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna hop back on it. But but yeah, no, I, I I had not read anything by James Swallow before, um, and I thought this was just done extremely well. It's it's hard for me to pick a favorite out of these three books, honestly. Um, they all three were so good. They're they're all good. They have great stories. They have you know interesting character development, character moments. Um, oh man, yeah, I can't pick a favorite. Well, I no, mean, I agree with you, Heather. I can't pick a favorite from the three either. I mean, they're all outstanding. I think we all gave them pretty high praise on the show here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think we all agree this one's like a warp 10 out of 10. <laughs> yes. It's, 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 again, I've read a lot of Star Trek novels, and this is really up there. 
It's it's really really good. <laughs> I give it ten bowls of blueberries. Uh, you know what? I've, I I think be, maybe because of Saru, I've been having like blueberries on my cereal, and I think of them as Saru berries. <laughs> Saru berries. Yeah. Saru berries. You got to put some salt in your tea. Yeah, there was a reference in here to that. There wasn't was. There's there lots yep, of there, yeah. that was in there. Yeah. yeah. Ten no, shakes I, of salt in your tea out of ten. <laughs> I like that. I like that one. I yeah, I hope that, that James will listen to the podcast. Um I'll ping him on Twitter. I mean I'm I hope that he will because Well he's I, being interviewed. I hope he like listens to how the interview comes out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, hopefully. Um because such such high praise and uh very happy to have him be part of the Discovery family now. So um, I hope he'll get to write another Discovery-focused book. But um, until then, I will I will catch up on his other Star Trek books. For sure. All right. So next time on Reading Trek, we're going to be covering, as I mentioned before, book four of the Invasion series that we put on hold for this episode. But then after that, we're going to be reading one of my favorites, Star Trek, but non-Star Trek books. Um, it's Red Shirts by John Scalzi. Wow, is that a book? Ensign Andrew Dahl has just been assigned to the Universal Union capital ship Intrepid, flagship of the Universal Union, since the year 2456. It's a prestige posting with a chance to serve on away missions alongside the Starship's famous senior officers. Life couldn't be better until Andrew begins to realize that, one... Every away mission involves a lethal confrontation with alien forces. Two, the ship's senior officers always survive these confrontations. And three, sadly, at least one low-ranking crew member is inadvertently killed. Unsurprisingly, the savvier crew members below decks avoid away missions at all costs. Then Andrew stumbles on information that transforms his and his colleagues' understanding of what the starship Intrepid really is and offers them a crazy, high-risk chance to save their own lives. That's the book. I know, it's a book. The book. And this isn't a Star Trek novel per se, but it does definitely tie into the Star Trek universe without giving too much away. And I'm very excited to be covering that one. It's Star Trek enough, I think. I've it's read Star it. Trek it's, enough. And I it's hilarious. It. Yeah, I think it passes... But before we turn it over to Will for the interview with James Swallow, um, let's let everyone know where they can get a hold of us. Um, Justin, where can people get a hold of you if they'd like to continue the conversation? Uh, well, you can hear me over on Trek FM co-hosting Earl Grey. That's our dedicated Next Generation podcast. I co-host that with uh, Amy Nelson and Richard Marquez, and we have a great time talking Next Generation every week. And you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. Ah. <laughs> nice. Heather, how about you? Where can people get a hold of you? Um, I am on Twitter at LLA Posper, which is L-L-A-P-A-W-S-P-E-R. And if you like Star Trek Discovery, um, you can also find Disco Trek. It's Disco underscore Trek um, on Twitter. And then uh, the rest of our stuff at the TricorderTransmissions.com. Awesome. And you can find me at Time Travel Marty and um, my co-host Will, who's not here. I don't know if he's going to mention it, but he's at William G. Conlin on Twitter. Um, you can reach the show at Reading Trek. You can also reach us by voicemail. 
609-512-LLAP, 609-512-5527. You can also find us online at readingtrek.thetricordertransmissions.com. And now we will turn it over to Will and special guest James Swallow. Take it away, Will. All right. Thanks, Marty. Uh, I am joined today by noted Star Trek author James Swallow. James, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So what is your Trek history? My Trek origin story. Wow. You mean from the very beginning, like kind of as a fan or as a writer or or both, the whole thing? How about as a fan? How did you get to, to this point? Okay. Um, I guess my first exposure to Star Trek probably would have been in the early 80s when the classic series was being re-shown on BBC Two over here in the UK. And and it was on that kind of time where I would come home from school, uh, just have time to kind of like have a snack, turn on the TV, and there would be classic Trek. And I would sit there and watch that uh, right up until the run through to sit down and have dinner with my parents. Um, And I'd always been a huge science fiction fan. And, and, uh, you know, at that age... I was absorbing pretty much everything I could get my hands on, you know, whatever kind of science fiction it was, whether it was in books or comics, movies, TV. Uh, But Trek became one of my favorite things. And I think it's true to say that it's probably like my first fandom, you know, the first thing that I was really seriously a fan of that I kind of went out and I bought the books and I read the comic books and I, you know, chased up all the episodes and taped them all off of TV and everything like that and saw all the movies. So that was kind of, you know, that's my, my, how I became a Star Trek fan. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, and then as my, uh, as, as my life kind of moved on and, and I decided as I grew up that, you know, I wanted to become a professional writer, that kind of crossed over with the, the Star Trek thread of my life and the two things kind of became mutually supporting. And, and that's eventually how I, I became a professional writer was partially because of my love of Star Trek. Well, that's great. And um, you've written novels for franchises including Stargate, Doctor Who, 24, Warhammer. What is it about Star Trek that's so compelling? For me, it's like a pair of comfortable shoes, you know, because it's a universe I know really well. Uh, I know the characters and it feels familiar to me. So whenever I go back to writing a Star Trek story, it always feels like kind of coming home in a way. So, uh, I just enjoy that so much. It's such a rich universe. There's so many great stories that have been told there and so much opportunity to tell more great stories that it's always, uh, it's always great fun to come back to the Star Trek universe. Nice. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit about your new Star Trek Discovery novel, Fear Itself. Uh, what was your reaction when you heard that Star Trek was going to be returning with Discovery? Well, of course, Star Trek was going to come back. I mean, obviously, right? You know, I mean, we, we've been without Star Trek for a while, but, uh, you know, I, I think I always knew that at some point Star Trek was going to return to television. I've always felt that's not to say anything uh, bad about the movies, but I've always felt that Star Trek lives best on TV as a serialized format. So I knew at some point the show was going to come back. And, and when I heard about Discovery, um, obviously, I, w- I was very enthused, and it was really interesting to see what they did with it, and and you know, take, taking this piece of Star Trek history, part of the timeline that we hadn't previously seen, and expanding it in new and interesting ways. And it's very much it feels like a Star Trek show for the 21st century, you know, because we have new characters, new sensibilities, as well as kind of touching on a lot of the stuff that makes Star Trek Star Trek. There's also a lot of things in there that make it you know interesting and fresh and new. 
Absolutely. Um, how early in the new franchise's development process were you brought on board for the book? Well, it was about, um, I'd say, just over a year ago now. So the show was, I think, in pre-production when the first sort of round of conversation happened. Um, the Kirsten Beyer, who you, you'd be familiar with, who's one of the Star Trek novelists who you know went to work on the show, she was kind of the buffer between the show's production and uh, the tie-ins, you know, with the, the, the fiction tie-ins with the comics and, and the books. Mm-hmm. And so she, and so she was in charge of deciding, you know, who do we want to get to to write these novels? And um, she and I are good friends, and she uh, she liked my writing style. So when she decided to recruit the the first three writers, that so was uh, Dayton Ward, um, David Mack, and myself. She just got in touch with us and said, well, how would you guys like to do something for, for the new show? And obviously, we all said, well, yeah, well, of course, <laughs> you know, why would we not? You know, what a great opportunity. Um, and we, we had a lot of, of discussions about what kind of stories we were going to tell. You know, Dave was in the frame to do this um, story for, uh, about the, the first meeting with the Discovery and uh, – well, sorry, with the, with the Shenzhou and the Enterprise. Dayton had this idea for the Lorca story. And uh, Kirsten said to me, you know, how do you feel about doing something about the character of Saru, you know, this – who's going to be the breakout alien character, you know, the equivalent of Spock or Odo or, you know, Seven of Nine. You know, the, we always have the outsider character in Star Trek, right? You know, mm-hmm. always the guy who's – looking at the human condition from the outside inwards. And it's like, this is who, this is going to be that guy for, for discovery. And immediately the, that was intriguing to me. Um, but at this point, of course, a year before production, we were all sworn to absolute secrecy to the point that, you know, um, I couldn't even discuss the point, the, the fact that I was involved. And so, you know, I was seeing other people talking about stuff. I was, you know, there was a point where Dave went out to the, the big convention in Las Vegas and they, they brought him on stage and they brought Dayton on stage and said, well, these two guys are writing. And I'm like watching that on video, biting my tongue going, you know, I can't say anything about being involved because I'm the, I'm the third guy on the line and we have to keep it all very quiet and very, very secret, you know, and we were getting all of this material from the show. We, we had, unprecedented access to the series it really was quite incredible in in terms of all of the franchise licenses i've ever worked on i've never had this much access it has been been quite amazing the you know the the way that the, and the door kind of swings both ways a little bit as well you know they were they were willing to chat to us a little bit and, and listen to our kind of input on things so for for months i would kind of turn on my computer every morning and there would be a new draft of an episode script for the show and there would be the day's photography from the previous filming. So I was literally watching the show coming together day by day, seeing these, you know, all these um, backstage shots and, and pictures of these characters doing different things and reading all these various drafts of the scripts. And it was a really interesting experience to have. And against all of that, as all of that material was coming to me, I had to start constructing the storyline for um, what at the time was called Danger Zone. Um, hmm. Because we were, we were going to originally we were going to have all the books. We, we we decided we would give them all titles that were two word titles starting with the letter D. But it turns out that um, there obviously aren't that many Kenny Loggins fans at um, <laughs> at Pocket Books. So so we decided to just drop that title and we went for Fear itself, which I think you know kind of speaks a little bit more to Sarah's character. And uh, and that and that was how it worked. And so you know we went through this this big development process. Um, stage by stage, just gradually crafting the story uh, as in in kind of parallel with the development of the show, so we could do something that hopefully felt like it dovetails really closely with the TV experience. 
Yeah, I was actually um, in the audience at uh, STLV last year with the um, uh, panel with David and Dayton and Kirsten, and um, one of the things that they had talked about was that this was going to be the closest relationship ever between Trek novels and the actual series, that there was going to be a, a real partnership rather than, you know, in the past when Trek novels kind of were on their own and not necessarily canon. So um, did you uh, and David and Dayton coordinate a lot in the process because you have so many overlapping characters even though they're they're years apart in the stories absolutely totally did that yeah i mean we all knew each other from previous projects that we'd worked on i mean we've we've worked in uh, different subsets of the the star trek novel series you know we were when we were doing the the full five-part miniseries mm. um dave's book was the one before mine and and dayton's book was the one that followed mine so you know that was kind of like a, a relay race of writers. So, you know, we had to have a lot of kind of interaction there to make sure that our, our storylines were connected up. Um, so, yeah, and, 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 you know, and we're friends too. So, you know, occasionally we'll, we'll just sort of like chat on Twitter or on Skype and just see you catch up and talk. So th- there's a nice kind of collegiate friendly relationship going on there that we can just toss ideas around. Uh, and Dave certainly led the charge on, on the, the collaboration. You know, he put together the equivalent of like a kind of writer's novel writer's Bible, pulling together all the information. And we all contributed to that a little bit. So we had a kind of shared resource that the three of us could draw from in terms of like, you know, what's the name of this character on the bridge? You know, do we have a backstory for that guy? You know, where was this guy born? What's the registration number of that vessel? You know, that kind of thing. All of that as a, as a sort of shared document that we could, we could work from. Um, and that was really, really helpful. It, it helped us kind of keep a sort of sense of coherence for it. And as the, the show was being developed as well, we were kind of updating that and changing things to, it reflect as closely with the series reality as we could back into the books. Absolutely. Now, I've heard that your character profile for Saru was used in the writer's room for the show. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I don't, to be honest, I don't know how much of that has been, has been used. Uh, at the very earliest iteration of the process, the very first kind of version of this story was originally going to be two parallel plot lines. Uh, and the the main plot line, which is which is in uh, Fear Itself now, which is a story about Saru kind of dealing with a situation in the present day, as it were. And it's kind of a, for him, it's a kind of be careful what you wish for story because, you know, he wants to be a command officer and he finds himself thrust into a situation that's kind of a little above him. You know, he's kind of struggling to kind of keep his head above water. So that was going to be one part of the storyline. And the second part of the storyline was going to be a flashback narrative, which was going to explain how Saru became part of Starfleet and and a little bit more about his backstory and kind of like his origin. And I remember at the early stages when they said, you know, do you want to write the origin story for Saru? I said, you you guys really sure you want me to do that in a novel? Because this is this is a pretty big deal for a pretty strong character. And, you know, this feels more like something you'd want to do on the TV show because it's a really cool idea, you know. And obviously the TV show has the pick of the better ideas because it's the thing that leads the whole franchise. Mm-hmm. And they were, no, no, you know, we, we want you to do it. So, uh, you know, I, I was, are you quite sure? You really, really, really sure you want me to do this? And then, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So I started putting together a plot line, but as time moved on, they, I think they kind of came around, they saw my point of view and they were like, actually, you know what? It's true. that Saru is really getting a lot of kind of energy from the, from the story. It might be better to tell this, to tell this story, have the freedom to tell this story on TV. So, I'd worked out a lot of backstory about um, not just his character, but ideas about his species and about how they'd evolved and what their home planet was like. And I put together a whole bunch of notes, some of which I touch on a little bit uh, in Fear Itself. 
but when we were done, I kind of handed that all over to the writers' room and I said, if you guys want to use any of this, that would be terrific. Um, but obviously, it's up to them. <laughs> so, um, you know, we know for a fact there is going to be a Saru-centric story. Um, we we are going to visit his home planet um, of um, Kaminar, and I was very pleased as well. This is the first place that in the book, that's the first place Saru's homeworld is actually the name of it is actually mentioned. So we have a little bit of connective matter going on there. And um, but what they do with it in the show, uh, I have no idea. It would be really great if they use some of my stuff. I would feel really really happy about it. But obviously, you know, they have to pick what's going to work best for the show. So we'll see how it plays out. Well, that's got to be really exciting, and I know you have a history of that as well, because you did um, two storylines for Voyager that were then sent to the writers' room, correct? That's right. Yeah. Excellent. That was that was kind of the you know I said at the beginning of the interview about how kind of Star Trek was dovetailed with my um, my my writing career. That was pretty much those the Voyager things were pretty much my very first professional sales as a writer. Um, back in the day when uh, Star Trek used to be open to unagented writers where you could come in and pitch scripts and story ideas, I pitched, um, over the course of a few years, I pitched a couple of ideas to, to Voyager. I mean, I think in total I probably pitched, no, no, maybe two or three hundred separate ideas. Uh, and out of that, I, I managed to sell two, um, two premises, which were then taken up and, and made into full-on episodes. Uh, and that was pretty much the beginning of my professional writing career right there. And so, uh, in a way... Uh, I kind of owe Star Trek a debt of gratitude for for helping me get to the career that I'm at, I'm in now. That is fantastic. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit more about Saru in in the book. Um, how did you approach a character whose main trait is fear? Well, I think you know everybody knows what it's like to be afraid of something, right? You know, he's um, he's an interesting character because I, I like. I like his depth and nuance. I like the fact that there's a lot of things about him that conflict with each other. You know, he's he's got an ego, but he wants to be liked by people. He's kind of a bit arrogant and haughty, but at the same time, he's kind of a little bit fragile and vulnerable. And I, and I really like the conflict within him. And a character like that, once you've got someone who kind of envelops those conflicting attitudes, you immediately get good drama kind of bubble out of that. So mm-hmm. as a... As a compelling character, he was he was fun to take on. You know, just from the the very first iterations I'd seen of him on the page, uh, and then I started seeing the the character designs. You know, you know, there's that character design that's just come up recently, the one with the multiple eyes. That was uh, right at the very beginning. We were talking about this version of him with all these different eyes, and then the, that fell away, and we ended up having the the version of the makeup that we see now. And then I saw the photographs of Doug Jones playing the character, but it was quite a while before I actually saw him kind of moving around and walking and talking. So to begin with, I had this static kind of version of him in my head. But I think once I saw some footage of, of Doug encapsulating the character, he, he really kind of bloomed and became like fully formed in my mind. And then, and that was where I took him on. And he's, he's atypical when it, when we think of most of Star Trek characters that we know, most of them are, are pretty competent and they're pretty straightforward and, and they kind of, you know, they kind of know themselves and often when we see characters on on the other Star Trek shows, they're all they're on a journey to to learn more about themselves, but they're already in a good place usually. I think Saru Saru's journey is is a very strong one, you know, because he's going from this place of being kind of unstable and kind of slightly nervous about his place in the world, and he knows what he wants, but I feel like he's got a long road to travel, and that was immediately interesting to me. Is that how does somebody like this having to deal with 
what some people might consider kind of handicaps, you know, being a bit of a scaredy cow about stuff. And how does he get past that? How does he get to, to improve himself and not be defined by these traits of his nature? And that, to me, is a really interesting place to, to attack a character and, and to, to take a, a narrative from. Yeah, and I, I love a lot of the parallels that you drew in, in the book that, that directly relate to episodes of Discovery, like when he says, we are Starfleet, which goes that, that dr- draws that straight line to his wonderful speech towards the end of the season. And, uh, you know, I love when he and Burnham are uh, debating whether they're going to use the uh, EV suits, just like in the pilot. So there's so many great connections. Um, talking about the... Um, considerable development that you see in both Saru and Burnham in the first season of Discovery, knowing that that was going to happen, was it difficult creating an arc for them that would take place years before as well? Well, I was kind of lucky because um, I was still writing Fear Itself after the first season finished. So because I was kind of tail end Charlie of the first three books, I had the most amount of time to assimilate the way that the show was being written and, and the final version that, um, that everybody saw on TV. So the elements you're talking about there, you know, the deliberate connections that I laid in, those, those kind of deliberate moments of foreshadowing, I had the luxury of having seen the whole series. Nice. And so I knew how things were going to play out. You know, I knew that Saru would have that speech later on. So that's a deliberate moment where you know, he has that moment that is supposed to be a kind of pre-echo of what he will say, you know, and then there's a couple of elements too. There's somebody referring to kind of, you know, f- um, if he finds uh, a, a peace within himself, he's not a character who has peace within himself. He's got conflict and he has to learn to embrace that rather than kind of put it to one side. And that very much is um, a, a nod towards Kirsten Byers episode where, you know, they go down to the planet and he meets the alien species and, you know, he has that kind of moment about, you know, whether he wants to have that moment of living without fear uh, and the kind of truth I wanted to touch on is that he can never truly be without that because it's such an important integral part of his personality. So all of these things, I drew kind of drew these threads backwards from the show and I thread them through this story that's taking place four years earlier. That's great. And I think it's it's so great that this was the third novel to come out too because we had the advantage of seeing the physicality of Saru on the show so you have that great mental image when you describe the way that he moves around I thought it was just incredible now you um you peppered the novel with some great connections to classic trek including fan favorite episodes like mirror mirror the tholian web and uh even tng's the host uh, can you talk about the decision making process for referencing those great episodes i uh, see nobody picks up on the charlie x reference either oh <laughs> Is a little. That's a. That's like a little one I stuck in there when I was doing the, uh, the timeline for this. When I was working out when it would be taking place in Star Trek history, uh, I realized it was the. It was the same time period where the ship that Charlie Exxon goes missing. So there's a tiny little reference where Saru talks about that happening, just as a kind of little throwaway. I, I love doing that stuff, though. Yeah. I did not catch Those that. That's th- so great. <laughs> It's, it's the kind of like, you know, the, what we always talk about, the term, the kisses with history, right? You know, so you, what you do is you put a little continuity reference in there, and it's like, if you get it, it's, it's like a little shared in-joke. It's kind of, hey, that's a cool little gag. And, and if you don't get it, it doesn't kind of, you know, knock you out of the story. So, you know, the, the Star Trek universe is such a big, interconnected thing. You know, it's this, it's this gorgeous, beautiful tapestry of stories all interweaving and cross-connected. Thing. So you have to be absolutely cognizant of all those things, and you have to use that continuity and use that uh, that that great 
open weft of, of storytelling to, to support your narrative. If you don't, you know, it just feels like it's happening in a little bubble of, of, of Star Trek that's not connected to everything else. So I think it's important to, to give you the sense that this is part of the wider world of the entire Star Trek mythos. Mm-hmm. Now, with all the franchises, the Star Trek franchises that you've written for, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Next Generation, uh, do you have a personal favorite? Uh, see, that's like asking me which one of my kids I love the most, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, question. Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, I, I love every piece of Star Trek. I mean, there's, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, uh, I don't think I've ever come across any Star Trek that I just didn't like. You know, there isn't one series I'd point out and go, that's my least favorite. I think if you held me to it, though, I would probably say the original series because that's the f- that was the first, my fir- like I said earlier, my first fandom. That was the first exposure I had to, to, to Star Trek. So I think classic Trek is probably my favorite show just because I came in there first. But I like them all in different ways. Excellent. So um, do you have any plans for more Discovery novels coming up? Well, you know, things are kind of up in the air a little bit with uh, with the Star Trek books right now. But um, I would absolutely love to come back and do another one. I mean, having seen all of the first season now and, and the whole sort of seen the full coherent shape of the way the show's evolved, you know, it is – it is very much a kind of novel for television. It's not the kind of episodic model that we really used to for, from other Star Trek shows. You know, it is this multi-part story that does have this whole kind of arc for these characters. Um, I, but I have to wonder, though. I mean, I was just thinking about this a couple of nights back. I got, I got my, um, my box of comp copies of, of Fear Itself, and I was admiring them and thinking, oh, this is great. I'm so pleased the book looks really good when it's finished. You know, It's always lovely to have a copy that you can kind of hold in your hand, right? And, and I thought, what, what would I do next? You know, if, the, if I got the call tomorrow and they said, okay, Jim, do another Star Trek Discovery novel, what would I do? Um, and the thing is, the continuity for season one of the show is so tightly wrapped that it would be really difficult to find a story that you could kind of slot in the gaps between episodes. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I mean, there's, there's so much going on there and it's, it's, it, the nuances are so sort of like cross-connected. It would be hard to say, well, I'm going to put an episode in here between this episode and this episode and have the characters go off and do something because you couldn't, I think you couldn't explore a lot unless you, you took them really, really kind of far away and out of it. So that's part of the reason why I think certainly this first trilogy of books have all been prequels mm-hmm. because it, it's, given, it's given us a much greater degree of freedom to not only kind of set up and foreshadow stuff, but also explore these characters at a different time in their life when their um, their nuances and, and, and their sort of development has moved in a different direction. So maybe, you know, there's so many cool characters. I mean, if we did more more novels about other characters, if we did, I guess, you think of them like spotlight books, right? You know, if you said, okay, what about this character? Like, I'd, um, I, I don't know if I'd be the right guy to write it, but I'd love to see a book about Tilly. Oh, absolutely. I think I think she's a great guy. It's funny, you know, when I was reading the script, when I first got to that scene, you know, in the where Tilly appears for the first time, um, uh, and she says, oh, you're not Michael Burnham, are you? you know, and I remember reading that and thinking, oh, I don't know about this character. You know, she could be really annoying <laughs> because she's kind of, you know, the way she comes across on the page, I was like, oh, I'm not sure. And I thought, if they don't get an actress who can play this character with warmth and nuance, this character's just not going to work. Uh, and then I saw Mary Wiseman in the show, and I was like, "Oh, she's brilliant!" And I fell in love with her right away, you know. And thought it was just she became, a, you know, one of my favorite characters on the show. So I'd love to see something about Tilly, you know, an exploration of kind of where she came from and who she is. Um, I think it would be very interesting to write a story about Ash Tyler. Oh yeah, you know, because um, you know here's here's this guy who you know I mean technically 
spoiler alert, we don't even actually see him really on mm-hmm. the show, do we? It's like it's like the Lorca thing, you know. When we meet Ash Tyler, that's not really him. Um, and you know, we know kind of where where he ends up. You know, when he gets captured by the Klingons at the Battle of the Binary Stars. And immediately I thought, well, there's the end point to that guy's story. But what's what kind of narrative could we have that would lead up to that? You know, who was he before all of this? You know, what put him into Starfleet and why did he become the man that he was? You know, so I think that's a very interesting idea. And and we've got this we've got this suite of other interesting characters on the bridge, you know, all of whom we've seen little insights, little flashes of their characters. Like, who are they? Where do they come from? Why are they, you know, what, what's Kayla Detmer's backstory, you know? Um, or then we've got characters like Aram, you know, the, the cyborg character is like, why is she, you know, why does she look like where she, she does and what kind of planet did she come from? What was her development? You know, these mm-hmm. are all really interesting ideas. Um, whether they're enough to support a novel or not, well, you know, we, we'd have to see, but um, I think it would, there's a lot of characters worth exploring there. And there's also a lot of nuance, to be taken out of the the tone and the texture of the Star Trek universe at this time period, because we're talking about this pre-Kirk TOS, pre-TOS era, mm-hmm. where thing, things are a little bit more fast and loose, and things are a lot rough around the edges. You know, the the Starfleet that we see is not not quite as kind of clean and pristine as the one we see in TOS. You know, they haven't got to that place yet. They're they're not quite as good as a group of people yet, you know, because they still, there's still a moral conflict and people haven't found their path yet. And that again is an interesting thing for a writer to tackle is how do you take this thing that you know is going to become this organization with these values at some future point, but they're not there yet. That exploration, you know, that development, that's an interesting path to follow. Absolutely. And, um, just to harken back to a, a reader's poll we actually did for our podcast, uh, what you were saying about future tie-in novels, it's it's funny you mentioned those because we did a poll and we, uh, we actually had a three-way tie at the end of it, pretty close. Um, the, the people, the backstories that people wanted to hear the most were Sylvia Tilly. Ash Tyler, and then um, Stamets and Kolber. So uh, the the fandom is definitely there right with you, and they want to hear these backstories. So there's sure. so much more to tell, and we, we certainly hope you're going to be telling more of these stories, because we really enjoyed Fear Itself. The the praise on our, um, our Twitter for it has been immense. People picked it up the day it came out, and they were speed reading it, and then rereading it right away. So... Thank you so much for for creating uh, just another great piece of Trek history here. And um, oh, thank you very much. That's 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 really that's really great to hear. I mean, you know, we're lucky here because we have a kind of two prongs of of narrative. You know, and of course, I have to say, is not only are we doing the the novels here, but we've also got the comic books too. So yes, you know, we've got we've got backstory about um, you know the Klingon characters. Uh, and the Mirror Universe characters, and, and like you said, Culber and Stamets, that, that's been touched on uh, with the comic books. You know, so we're exploring all of these kinds. Of, I mean, I'd love to do that. I mean, I'd love to grab, grab a little bit of the comics action because I'm a big comics nerd as well. You know, mm. I'd love to, I'd love to write, write a Star Trek comic at some point. But yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. You know, there, there are a lot of uh, fascinating, fascinating places we can go with this. And I'm, I'm just so pleased to hear that, that people are enjoying the book uh, and enjoying my take on the character. Um, it's been an absolute thrill to to be involved in this and and to write about an interesting character like this. You know, it's it's no great chore to sit there and say, well, here's this great tool set of stuff. You know, here's this cool character and here's this cool story and here's this cool thing. You know, do you want to go off and write a novel about that? Absolutely, yes, I do. You know, it's 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 uh, it's fun to have this job. 
I bet. I bet. Well, James, how can uh, people follow you online to learn more about what you're doing? Best place to find me is I'm on Twitter, at JMSwallow. Or you can uh, look at me look me up on my blog, and that's jameswallow.blogspot.co.uk. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us, and we're looking forward to a lot more of your writing in the future, and we're going to be covering some of your back catalog in future episodes. Uh, we're going to be doing the fall series at some point. It's, you know so well regarded among the trek novels so we're just uh we're really looking forward to uh reading a lot more of your work and uh, hopefully we can talk with you again soon that's great yeah i would look forward to it thanks a lot well this has been the reading trek fear itself mega episode i want to thank all of our guests including author james swallow for joining us and now captain picard would like to let let him read in peace i will leave you now to your book that is all i ask <laughs> 